0: All right. Questions now for Mr. Sasser. Uh, One thing, what John was saying about uh, John Owen, I encourage everybody to get Volume Seven of the Works of Owen and read not only the last sermon on Romans 6:14, but read Owen's work on apostasy. He uh, discusses some of the reasons why Puritanism had to come down, and uh, by a Puritan himself. So that's interesting. Uh, one thing uh, I'd like you to clarify, Bill. enjoyed your paper. Thank you. Uh, Hebrews 13, uh, verse 20. May the God of peace, who through the blood of the eternal covenant, brought back from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, and so on. Uh, you were saying that there was no eternal covenant. Yeah. But if so, then what is the meaning of what the author says in Hebrews 13:20? I believe that
1: this particular reference to uh, Hebrews 13:20. First of all, let me say this: What I said was, I used the term covenant of grace. I said that uh, I purposely shaped my words to say the purpose of God—that God had a purpose. Some approach this scripture and say that that word purpose, as I've used it, purpose of redemptive or redemptive plan. Uh, could, in fact, be called a covenant. The reason that I prefer plan of redemption is, first of all, because of what I said about most views of the eternal covenant or by between the Father and the Son, and I want to know where the Spirit is. So that's why I did that. Secondly, I think this passage could be, uh, it might be a play on words, Uh, But everlasting covenant to me would be different than eternal covenant. A little play on words here. I think this refers to the sealing of the new covenant by the death of Christ rather than just a reference to past eternity of the plan of redemption as I've described by Christ.
0: Is there some way you can demonstrate this from the text of Hebrews?
1: From a text in Hebrews? This is the only text that I know about here Yeah. I didn't hear what you said Fred I'm a little hard of hearing what did you say you want to come up here Sorry, I- yeah yeah we need to li- there I go again. speak
2: in the mic so they can get it I was just saying the Greek there would allow either I was just looking at when you uh, quoted it uh, the covenant of the ages um, does that mean, like you are pointing out, to be sealed and mm-hmm. done for good? It's very possible it could be, or it could be referred back. What you have to do is inform it then with other passages, which we're doing. It. So grammatically, I don't think it's going to be answered on those grounds. As my own I don't point. either. Yeah.
3: What, what this means then is that it is not looking this way, but this way, where he's saying, this is the sealing of a covenant that will never, ever have to be replaced yeah. in any sense. This is the first covenant that will truly be an everlasting covenant, and it's looking this way instead of back way. But if you start your presuppositions that there is this eternal covenant, this trinitarian covenant, then of course you can reference this back. Yes, but you got to come up here. Let me say while he's coming that uh, that
1: could be a play on words. And as Fred has pointed out, I think, again, we come back to what I said about presuppositions. Because of what I believe about the new covenant, I therefore choose not to approach the scripture with that there was a covenant. That implies almost a decision, a deliberating process, and so on, which I do not believe was necessary for the persons of the Godhead. And so, in a, in a practical sense, eternal has no beginning or ending. Everlasting might have a beginning, but no ending. And that's the way I approach that. And that's, that's why I interpret it that way.
4: I just wanted to make a brief comment that the um, context of Hebrews determines, I think, the way in which we take that everlasting covenant. Obviously, the contrast throughout the entire treatise has been that uh, there is a there is a contrast between the Mosaic covenant and the New covenant. the old, The Mosaic covenant is is one that. Uh, has changed and a new covenant has been established, and unlike the old covenant, that covenant is going to be an everlasting covenant. So I think the whole context of the book has to determine how we take that in that passage. Go ahead, John. Go ahead. ahead. I was just gonna say this. To me,
1: this couldn't be true in everyone's mind and it may not be true in yours. But if this particular passage did refer to the one or eternal covenant of grace, it wouldn't really affect in, in any way my hermeneutic, my hermeneutic approach. To me, it's a, it's a choice of, uh, of what I choose to read into that word. Certainly, I believe that the persons of the Godhead determined to save. The reason that I do not choose to look at that in the common way that the word covenant and all of this law of grace controversy is looked at is because of, uh, of the obvious reasons of the various administrations of it. So that's why. But it really wouldn't change my my approach at all if I thought that that meant, meant
3: the Father, Son, and Spirit's plan of redemption. No. Sometimes there's a distinction between what theologians call covenant of redemption, and this is what uh, Edwards gets into. And you you there's no question that you have the Father gave the Son a work To do, and that the Son came to do that work, and the Father promised the Son a reward for that work, and the resurrection is the fulfillment of that promise. Uh, But to take that over and make a Trinitarian covenant where they sit down at a round table, I think can get you into trouble. Charles Haddon Spurgeon has a sermon called, The Blood of the Everlasting Covenant, (laughs) <laughs> and it's one of those things that you just read and it's just wonderful. Nine-tenths of it doesn't have any exegetical basis in Scripture at all. Uh, but it's, you know, he, he pictures the, this round table literally and, and the Spirit agreeing to do that is tremendous. And, and you can say, well, yeah, those things are true, but never is it set forth that way in the Scriptures. And, and that's the difficulty with one of the principles he's talked about, biblical terminology and, and when you talk with somebody who's a covenant theologian and we say, well, let's, let's talk about the gospel. God preached the gospel to Abraham. He didn't make a covenant of grace with Abraham. But once you bring that covenant concept in as a biblical terminology, then you can bring infant baptism along with it. And I think what Bill is saying is you just don't have that set forth in the scriptures in that covenantal sense. You were going to say something? Is that why you ran up here? You just ran up to sit with your wife. All right. Any other questions? One, one other thing I
1: might say this, just, just a, a little bit of, a, a, of an exegetical uh, comment. And I don't have my text here, but the blood, the blood connected with the covenant, to me, uh, though we could say that the Christ was crucified before the foundation of the world, we know that that was only in purpose. And to me, as I traced all covenants, they were time. That's why I interpret this as being the death of Christ, this this redemptive plan from eternity, becoming the new covenant with the shedding of the blood of Christ. That's why I interpret it that way. Does that make any sense to you? Thank you. Okay.
5: Thank you, Bill. That was really good. I Thank appreciated you. that presentation. Um, I just have a point of clarity. I don't at all think that we differ on this, but I just wanted to ask you to rehearse a statement because I just can't remember it, but something about the culmination of the goal in Christ. Remember that part?
1: The culmination of the what?
5: You, you mentioned something about the culmination being in Christ, mm-hmm. culmination of the plan and so forth and the redemption mm-hmm. and whatnot. And uh, uh, a few years ago, one of my professors mentioned this word that I thought I'd never heard of before, but he said, well, something to the effect of make sure you're not a Christomonist and so forth. But uh, would you would you agree that uh, the goal of of redemptive history then would ultimately terminate in God Himself without um, ultimate distinctions like in First Corinthians fifteen that God may be all in all? Mm-hmm. You understand what my question is? Yes, I do. Okay. I
1: th- I think if if we if we're viewing God Listen ontologically, the people in the
3: back who are talking, move out into the next room, please.
1: If we're we're viewing God ontologically, uh, being in itself, uh, then we're talking about the monosyllable God implying the persons in the Godhead. As you know, the word Trinity, of course, is not found in the scripture. If we're talking of God in an economical sense, that is, as God relates to his created world, his being, and especially salvation in Christ, then we're talking in an economical sense. So if I understand your question, yes, I would say that, the, that the, to me, the whole scheme of salvation makes a grand circuit. It began in eternity, it comes into time through Christ, and it ends back up with God in eternity. I don't have a problem with that, Lord. Does that answer the question?
0: Yes, I, I suppose
1: yes. Okay. I'd have to think it through to see what implications are implied therein,
6: but I, I, I don't have a problem as I understand it. Well, I slept good last night. but I still have three lumps I got three lumps in my throat Uh, I don't want the conference end and that puts a lump in my throat And I don't want anyone to think I'm disagreeing with the brother here and that puts a lump in my throat and I'm probably going to sound like a covenant theologian and I'm the furthest thing from that of maybe anyone here and that kind of puts a lump in my throat too (laughs) so bear with me Uh, John 117 you may be aware that in dispensational circles there's a lot of concern about how that was traditionally handled by the old-line dispensationalist, in counterposing law and grace, and that was brought up here. I've always had a problem with that, and here's what my problem is. Whatever you do with the word grace in that verse, there's another word there you need to be careful about, and it's the word truth. you got to do the same thing with that word. And if you use that verse to say there's no grace in law, I'm going to insist you also say there's no truth in law because the two things are joined together in Christ. So if we see a contrast in that verse, I think we need to be very careful what we do with what's going on there between Moses and Christ and the law and grace and truth. There's a real danger there that we ignore the other word, and I've seen that happen uh, far too many times. I don't know if you want to respond to that.
1: Well, I would simply say this. The point is well taken. Certainly we would agree that there was truth in the law. There's no question about that. All of it was true, very true. It was so true that Christ our Lord came here and honored it in the keeping of it. But I think the burden of, of that passage is simply a, a kind of a contrast between this old covenant and between what came in Christ. Not that there wasn't truth, but the truth of salvation by grace came in Christ, and it did not come into law. That is my understanding of that text.
6: Okay. If I could just add to that, um, the way I would understand it is the contrast is between how the revelation came, that through Moses as a mediator, this one came, but then personified in the new covenant is grace and truth. And so the contrast is more the mediation of the covenant rather than the specific content, although there is some contrast there. What characterized this one is this, what characterized that one is that. But I wouldn't want to go so far as to say there's no grace in it based on that verse. Yes, yes. The other lump, this isn't in my throat now, but Hosea 6-7. O. Palmer Robertson, uh, J. Barton Payne, and others would point to Hosea 6-7 and the American Standard Version, and I don't know if anyone has the NESB which may have carried that through, Probably translates, if not in the text, in the margin that all we like Adam have transgressed the covenant. And I didn't hear that addressed here in denying the existence of an Adamic covenant. I don't have a problem with that as a premillennial dispensationalist, and I don't know that that's really the issue. I would deny a covenant of works per se, but I would have to agree with Payne and O. Palmer Robertson. I wouldn't want to argue based... On Hosea 6-7 that there's not a covenant with Adam and so that was something I thought maybe needed to be
0: addressed. I just worked through this passage a little bit in Hosea uh, it's a difficult text to know exactly what Hosea is uh, saying but one of the problems in the verse however you want to translate that and you see you have a number of variant readings But like Adam, NIV, they have broken the covenant. But then immediately, Hosea says, they were unfaithful to me there. And so it's like he's trying to say two different things. So it's a very unclear text. And to try and build anything on this text, uh, I don't think it's possible at this time in anyone's exegesis so we just have to lay this text to the side and say well whatever it means we can't build a system of theology upon it
1: one thing about that I'll just say this briefly uh, textually or exegetically they from the Hebrew the, the name Adam is a personal name it is also a generic term mm-hmm. and it can mean mankind so like the first man mankind has have transgressed to me that still does not imply a personal covenant with Adam. First of all, because there's no mention of the word covenant. And I tried to spell out the fact that when God prohibits or commands us to do something, it doesn't necessarily mean by that that we're entering into some kind of covenant with him. So since it's not mentioned there, then I refuse the idea of an Adamic covenant. And exegetically to me, that can be a generic term and that's the
3: way I interpret it rather than uh, the personal name of Adam. It definitely can be legitimately translated either way. Yes. Uh, The original Confession of Faith did not use that as a proof text. Uh, If you want to read the pros and the cons, B.B. Warfield, in his works, has an entire article on Hosea 6-7. He, of course, wants to make it mean uh, the covenant with Adam but in his whole article he admits that this cannot be established. And then John Murray, in his works, just flat out says that Hosea 6-7 cannot in any sense be used to prove a covenant of works with Adam. So the, the one thing I would disagree with what you said is that we do not try to prove there wasn't a covenant of works with Adam with this text. The whole burden of proof is on the man who believes in a covenant of works to get his evidence to prove it to us. It's like the old argument with the Anabaptist where the Lutheran said to the Anabaptist, says, surely you think there was at least one small child in the jailer's household? And the Anabaptist says, no, the youngest child in his house was a 12-year-old boy. Yeah. <laughs> And the Lutheran got his Bible and says, sir, show me where there's a 12-year-old boy in this text. He says it's the same verse as your baby. In other words, our burden is not, we don't have to prove there isn't something there. They got to prove it is there. And by their own admission, it's dubious.
6: Yeah, I don't think the um, acts that we're going to be grinding today amongst each other is covenant of work, covenant of redemption, sure. covenant of grace. But whether there was a biblical covenant, or we can use that terminology to describe what happened with Adam that was I could hear that verse coming up if some of those people were sitting here and another one was mentioned and I I just you know I know there's a way to handle that and even the uh, context that you brought up federal headship could allow for that Uh, that there's a a multiplicity of people involved in what took place there so and I could hear them saying it you know (laughs) and I I just wouldn't want to camp on it either way but To rule out a covenant with Adam, I think, you know, that would have to be dealt with. My last one is uh, a minor point, but you mentioned the text with Cain in Genesis 4-7 about sin lying at the door and dealt with it as a sin offering. Um, I've been persuaded by uh, doctoral work, I believe it was, that Susan Foe did at Westminster Theological Seminary. Women in the Word of God is where it was published. She's not the only one who's presented this Understanding of it, there's only one other place in the uh, words that follow <clears throat> what was read, uh, unto thee shall be his desire, and thou shalt rule over him, that that referred to the sin that lied at the door, and rather than seeing it as a sin offering, she brought out from the verb there that it's lo- it's crouching there like a beast ready to spring on its prey, and Cain was the prey, and uh, unto thee Cain shall be his sin desire, and thou you must rule over him, <clears throat> which, of course, Cain didn't do. And he lost that battle with the sin that was lying there waiting to conquer him. The only other place in Scripture where you have a comparable construction is in chapter 3. Interestingly enough, and this is where Susan Foe was going with this, uh, to the woman, the curse on the woman. Thy, it, this is part of the curse, remember. Thy desire shall be to thy husband, and he shall rule over thee. And it says if the woman was crouching in the door like sin after Cain, after the husband. But your husband must Rule over you, and uh, she drew an interesting argument from that—that that, uh, would trace the roots of the whole feminist movement to the curse on the woman. And uh, then you wouldn't see—if you followed that—you wouldn't see that as a sin offering lying mm-hmm. at the door. Mm-hmm. And I just wondered if you wanted. To well,
1: uh, what if I understand you correctly? You're saying that you want to understand—you understand this text to say that Cain, <clears throat> you have to control your sin. You have to get control of it. Is that right? Right. Okay. I'm familiar with that interpretation. All I think is uh, I don't don't interpret it that way. And the reason I don't interpret it that way is because I think the Lord is simply saying to Cain, I've accepted your brother on the basis of his sacrifice, which is on the basis of blood. And he says, why is your countenance fallen in verse 6? Why are you angry? Because you know what to do and I don't think that uh, certainly he has to get both are implied certainly he would have to get control of himself but getting control of himself would not satisfy God he must also have blood to offer and to me I see the I see the text and I'm not a Hebrew scholar by any means but I see the text from my own study as referring to the fact that if you are displeased with my displeasure of you and with the fact that I've accepted your brother is it is because uh, you, you're going to have to approach me with a sin offering, and your sin is in, in that sin offering, so to speak. Your sin is in the offering that you make to me. That's the way I interpret it. I certainly uh, have respect, though, for that
3: other interpretation. Do. Okay, before the next question, something was mentioned here that I, I want to pick up on. Uh, Covenant theologians are constantly accusing, uh, especially dispensationalists, of, of uh, being a bibliology and Jehovah's Witnesses, and when you question the covenant of works with Adam, that's the first thing they throw at you. Well, you want a a specific text, you're worse than the Jehovah's Witnesses, but when you start into covenant theology, you will find that on the crucial places, they will build everything on a dubious translation of only one text. The covenant of works with Adam is one of them, Hosea 6-7 is the one text. And then the other one that was mentioned the other night is their whole textual proof that the church is Israel is one text in the book of Acts chapter 7 where it says the church in the wilderness. And as Randy pointed out, if that means that, the, that Israel was a church, that it also means that that town meeting was also the church. So, so when, when, when they throw that at dispensationalists and others, they are the guiltiest people in the world of taking one text and building a whole system on it. Yes.
4: I just had a, just had a couple of comments with reference to the uh, matter of grace and truth. It seems to me that John, in, throughout his gospel, uses the word truth not in contrast to error, but in contrast to type and shadow. The law certainly was true. There is truth in the law. <coughs> But there was not truth in the law in the the sense that the law provided us a real substantial uh, worship or that what the law was looking forward to uh, is in the law itself. The law came by Moses, but that of which the law spoke came by Jesus Christ. And it seems to me that that is the burden of that text. The other thing that I wanted to say is that I personally don't have any difficulty at all saying that God did make a covenant with Adam. Uh, Fred said I could say that because he thinks he's been a heretic, heretic enough this week, and it was my turn. <laughs> my problem, if if in fact a covenant is a divine disposition, uh, unilateral in its character, then God did, in setting Adam as the head of the race, make a covenant in that sense. Now, the problem that I have is is when we try to force into that disposition that God made with Adam the idea that God said okay Adam if you will continue during this state of um, prob- probation if you will continue then you will earn for yourself eternal life or whatever it, it is what we try to put into the covenant that is the problem not the covenant itself so
2: so <sighs> <laughs> Um, this will be brief, but I think on the John one seventeen issue that he brought up, I think there's more here that actually lends more weight to what you're speaking of. Uh, when he says grace and truth came through Jesus Christ, there is a redemptive historical shift there that's going on, and I think there's some linguistic ties back to the Hebrew. In the Old Testament, God had promised his hesed and emet, his faithfulness or loving kindness, his grace, and his truth to his people Israel. The idea there is not truth as over against error or truth as over against falsehood even. The idea is truth in the sense of faithfulness. Faithfulness to do what he said he would do. And it's used in satiric passages in the Old Testament, particularly when God is speaking of the redemption of Israel. I promise my chesed and emet. In the Septuagint, that's Karis and Aletheia. Well, when John comes along, he says, Karis and Aletheia has come in Christ. In other words, God he has brought about his faithfulness, loving-kindness, mercy, grace, and truth. All that was promised is embodied in Christ, and all that had previously been promised is now being brought about in Christ. And you have more of this fulfillment theology brought over, (laughs) just in the linguistic terminology there.
7: Amen. I want to just change gears a little bit, and the kind of question I have is unrelated to the ones we've been hearing, more from a practical standpoint. Uh, You know, the ones that we deal with oftentimes who oppose us, ironically, are the ones that love the Bible most, Um, speaking particularly of fundamentalists. They have a dear affection for the scriptures and uh, they believe they're standing on the Word of God. But as we've been hearing from our speaker this morning, the importance of hermeneutics, the historical grammatical approach and background culture and so on, I'm wondering how you would deal with these two things. One would be Deuteronomy 22.5. The woman shall not wear that which pertaineth unto a man, neither shall a man put on a woman's garments. For all that do so are an abomination unto the Lord thy God. And I think all of us here probably know the way it's interpreted by, uh, I'll use the term fundamentalist. The other one would be 1 Corinthians chapter 11. It talks about uh, every man who prays or prophesies with his head uncovered Dishonors his head, but every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors. Oh, the other way around, excuse me. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. Every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. And then verse 10 says, For this cause ought the woman to have exousia, authority, because of the angels. Uh, does that seem to have some transcending reference to the church in any period of time that would transcend culture and social norms at that particular time? The first and second questions I have, wondering if you could address them briefly. Okay.
1: Whether or not this would be a direct answer, I'm not sure, but I would say this. First of all, I believe that uh, under the New Covenant, that the Spirit of God gives us a frame of mind in nature to know what is proper and improper. I personally do not believe that there's any difference in the code of conduct in a practical sense under the new uh, covenant, but I do believe that there's also a liberty in Christ. I would have a problem with some of the Old Testament texts like the uh, don't Don't plow an ox with a mule and those kind of things. I, I approach those first of all uh, that in a practical sense, first of all, because I came from the south and I, I know what would happen if you tried to plow an ox with a mule. You wouldn't get anywhere and also of course, there's spiritual implications there of diverse kinds and so on as in this here but I do think that there is a, uh, a, there's a there's a femininity and a masculinity that God has gave to man and he did he did uh, make us distinct as far as having a text to uh, qualify and clarify that I don't. The way I would handle that uh, I've had to talk to some ladies recently about the dress. Uh, I'm not uh, not a legalist I don't have a problem with slacks or anything else but I think it should be modest uh, but I don't have a text to handle that brother except to say that I believe that if a person is under Christ I, we shouldn't let our good be evil spoken of. That's a moral thing in terms of dress, whether you want to mix uh, linen or whether you want to wear that to pertains to a man. I think if we get into that too much, we have to talk about degrees. At what point does what one wear pertains to the man? When does it become feminine? When is it masculine? We do know from the book of Genesis that after Adam and Eve sinned, that God gave I think very explicit information to Adam, when he, uh, to Eve, when he said, uh, your, your desire should be to your husband, he shall have the rule over thee. I think that I can read into that text that it will be in the nature of the female to always be grasping, to have the upper hand. That, that is in that text. It is in the nature of women. Men have 80% something like that muscle. Women don't, but they have the emotional makeup is different. And so when it comes to pertaining to dress, uh, I leave the matter of dress, uh, again, may not be handling this the way you want to, and you may want to respond to it. Uh, I leave the matter of dress up to that individual so long as it is within the confines of what I consider to be modesty. If someone mixes linen and wool or something, I'm not going to say anything to them about it. But in terms of uh, attire, Causing the female to take on the characteristics, the attitude, and so on of the male, I would probably have a problem with that personally. Just exactly how I would handle that text, I'm not exactly sure. And uh, the other passage was what? The head
7: coverings.
1: The head coverings. Of course, you probably know the two basic ways that that's usually handled. One is, some say that the hair is the natural covering of the woman and that therefore the woman should not, uh, the glory of the woman is her hair. She shouldn't shorn her hair, cut her hair. Today, of course, lots of women are wearing very, very short hair, shorter than mine. In fact, I need a haircut, but I couldn't get one before I came up here. And uh, the the other interpretation is that women should wear some sort of something on their head in order to indicate that they are in submission to their husband as unto the Lord. And it has been my experience First of all, experientially speaking, has been my experience that uh, there's a church that I used to preach in all the time, in conferences. And the ladies in that congregation observed that, but they didn't do it in the sense of making anybody else feel uncomfortable. They did wear a little, a little uh, what's the term, up here on the head, I forget what it's called. They wore it up here. And I I think they did that in a very nice spirit. It was the tradition of their particular church, and their pastor interpreted that particular passage to mean something that was literal and physical, that literally showed that they were in submission to their husbands. Uh, We know, of course, that you can do these things and not be in submission. Men can too, but that doesn't have anything to do with the text. What does the text say? Well, I think... Personally, that uh, that's taken over from from Judaistic practices, and I think probably in the New Testament church that there probably was a physical something that indicated that the women were in submission
3: to their husbands. That's the way I handle that text. Okay, we're done. The text in Deuteronomy. What's always amazed me is that in that culture, the women wear pantaloons and the men wear skirts. <laughs> Always amazed me how we got to reverse that, but we have. (laughs) (laughs) But the modesty idea, Harry, I don't know if you have gotten in the summertime down there yet where they come in swimming suits. I said, I don't know yet whether anybody has come to church down there this year in a swimming suit. I had trouble getting used to that. (laughs) And I, I get. There's some things I may be stodgy about, but, but I, I believe in what he talked about, modesty. And uh, we're, we're not going to make any rules, but every once in a while we really have to gulp. And if you're going to teach that First Corinthians is for today and you're going to wear a prayer covering, then, then just get any picture of a Saudi Arabian woman and you'll see what a prayer covering is. My wife and I, when we were Roman Catholics, we were going someplace on a holiday and she wanted to stop for mass and she had on her shorts but she took a paper napkin two bobby pins and put it on her head and went in and come out to mass and felt that she had covered her head very effectively I'm not sure that that's what a head covering means <laughs> Yes, you want to say something yet? Maybe you would want to address and I failed to do so those are two good questions I'm not sure of the issue, but I failed to mention anything about before the angels you
1: want to address what you think about it?
3: Go ahead, go ahead
1: Turn
7: it
1: on. Speaking uh, here. Do you think that, uh, brother, that that refers to any uh, relationship to uh, those passages that say the angels desire to look into the things of salvation? Or what do you think? Yeah, that the angels desire to look into these things. What do you think about that? Before <laughs> the angels. <laughs> well,. Uh, I need to go back and look at that text, too, because, as you know, that uh, does that uh, probably does mean angelic being rather than messenger or uh, just a messenger of God or a human being. But it also may be interpreted, and I've known some people to interpret it, that it is a social thing, that in, in, in before God, that before God and the whole heavenly host, as well as before men, the messengers of God and so on, that there's a testimony of the godly woman that she's in submission to her husband. They lived in a society, as you know, in the first century, that certainly everything was chaotic. And uh, so that can be interpreted to me either way. It can be interpreted to mean a social thing, a testimony, not let my good be evil spoken of, that kind of thing, or it could mean that... Before, in the world to come, whatever, we shall judge the nations and we shall judge the angels and so on. It could also mean that there's just a general attitude before the heavenly host and heavenly testimony of God that those who are redeemed by Christ are done so justly because they indeed have a submissive, obedient spirit. In the church that I pastor, uh, women do not wear head coverings, but we have women who come from time to time who may have one on and it has become a tradition. I just listened two or three weeks ago to a message by a man who is dead now, and he gave a very strong exposition of that, and he did believe that, uh, it, that women should literally wear something to show as a testimony to others that they were in submission. It's kind of like this. One right doesn't make a wrong. Uh, two, two wrongs don't make a right, I should say, but it's kind of like mar- wearing a, a marriage ring. This is not my marriage covenant. I could, I could sin against my wife with this ring on and with two or three wedding bands on. But it's in my conduct and my attitude toward her and before the world uh, that, I, that I demonstrate first to her that I love her and her alone and having forsaken all others for her alone and so on. All the duties that a husband owes to his wife and not by this. So I think a lot of times symbolism, I don't condemn it. If that is indeed a symbolism, then I think there's more in the New Covenant sense in in the spirit and attitude of how we conduct ourselves than in those symbols, even if that is a literal symbol. But that's a good question.
3: Okay, let's stand and sing. I will sing of the mercies of the Lord and we'll go home.